All righty. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Daniel study. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with us to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. If you've been here for most of these weeks, uh, or at least some of these weeks, uh, probably so far we've been covering relatively familiar passages of Daniel. These are even often children's stories. You've got uh, the, the, the fiery furnace, and you've got the lion's den, and things like that. And this is the point in Daniel where things take a pretty strong turn uh, in, in a different kind of direction. The first six chapters are more familiar stories. The last six chapters are a little bit more remote to a lot of us and a little less familiar, or probably a lot less familiar for a lot of us who've perhaps grown up in church. Uh, we are going to pray, and then we will just dive right in. Our plan is just to cover the first 14 verses of Daniel 7 today, and Lord willing, we'll finish the chapter next Sunday. Uh, Greg, can you open us in prayer? Yeah, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, you have revealed yourself to us so that we can know you, so that we can know Jesus and the salvation that we have in him. Um, Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word like we have here at North Avenue. Lord, I pray for this class. I pray for the, the Romans class. Lord, help us to, uh, just to engage your word with all our hearts and our minds. Lord, help us who are teaching to just be clear and faithful to the text and be able to explain it and apply it in a way that benefits us all, God, that we can uh, better walk with you and make you known to those around us. And Lord, help us just to, to stand in awe of, of your power and your sovereignty, Lord, over the kingdoms of this world, um, Lord, which are subject to you, which cannot conquer you, God, which are ultimately coming to an end. Lord, we long for the kingdom that is promised in this chapter, Lord, to be fully realized uh, over all the earth. Um, and so, Lord, help us have a greater longing for that kingdom in that day uh, because of our time right now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me say a word about the structure of the book of Daniel. Now, this may not seem totally relevant, but I, I really do think this is significant to understand the book. So if we're reading this in English, like most of us, we're reading this in English, we're probably not going to notice this unless our Bible has a footnote to explain this. Did you know that almost the whole Old Testament is written in the language of Hebrew? Probably knew that. And the New Testament is almost entirely written, almost every word is written in the language of Greek. But Daniel is one of the only places in the Old Testament where another language is used for several chapters, and it's the language of Aramaic. And if you read this in the originals, what you would see is the first chapter of Daniel is in Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7 are in Aramaic, one of the only sections of Aramaic in the whole Old Testament. And then chapters 8 to 12 are back to Hebrew again. Now that certainly would stand out to you if you're reading it in the original. Like, wow, we changed languages for several chapters. And here is one of the structural reasons I think what, what may be going on here. See if you can follow this for a second. I don't have a diagram. I'm just going to have to use my hands and try to make this make sense. So imagine you got chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 going out like this. Uh, chapter 1 is sort of introductory to the book, and it's written in a separate language. Chapters 2 through 7, okay, are written in Aramaic. Now, there's this amazing thing where the, it's called a chiastic structure, which basically means it goes like A, B, C, C, B, A in the way that those chapters go. And here's what I mean by that. The, these chapters correspond to each other. Chapters 2 
The first chapter in Aramaic and chapter 7, which is the last chapter in Aramaic, are extremely similar because they both have to do with this image of four future kingdoms. Remember the statue with the four different kinds of metals? And here you're going to have four different beasts representing four different coming kingdoms. And uh, they also end with the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah, destroying the kingdoms of man and taking over the world. Do you see how similar those two chapters are? Then you move forward another chapter. This is now chapters 3 and 6, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 3 and 6. In 3 and 6, we have what? Well, in chapter 3, we have the fiery furnace, and in chapter 6, we have the lion's den. Do you see a similarity between those two chapters? In both chapters, the government is asking Christians to sin, and in both cases, the righteous remnant says, we're not going to sin, and in both cases, they are thrown to their death, one group in a fiery furnace, one to a lion's den, and in both cases, God rescues them with an angel from certain death, and they are delivered, and the king praises the God of Israel. See how similar those are. Now, the next closest pair are chapters 4 and 5. Those two chapters have almost the same theme. In both chapters, you have an arrogant pagan king who is humbled by the God who exists and brought down to nothing. Nebuchadnezzar, humbled like a beast in the fields until he admits that God rules, and Belshazzar at his feast, who doesn't repent in the way that Nebuchadnezzar seems to, but instead meets his doom. He dies that very night from a judgment of God. But in both cases, an arrogant king, pagan king is humbled by the God of Israel. Now, do you see how similar the, the structure is? It's A, B, C, C, B, A, and those are the Aramaic chapters of Daniel. And what's interesting about chapter 7 is, chapter 7 is really the pivot or the link between the two sections, the two halves of the book. So, chapter 7 is, corresponds to the first half of the book with the four kingdoms, but it also corresponds to the rest of the book dealing with visions of the future including the Messianic kingdom and even the Antichrist, I believe, is in this chapter, and things of that nature. So, seven is a pivotal chapter at the center of the book, and it connects, it holds the two halves of Daniel that are so different otherwise. Seven beautifully holds the two halves together. It corresponds to both sides of the book, and it demonstrates several things. Let me just read the part of the first verse, and then we'll read the whole thing together. The first verse says, Daniel 7, 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, so now we're going back in time, Uh, the king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Here we are explicitly told who is writing this down, Daniel himself. So here you see clear evidence of Daniel being the author of this book, and you also see here uh, very clear evidence that um, this book is a cohesive whole. It all holds together under one ultimate author. So with that as an introduction, Fred, can you read all of 1 to 14 just so we can hear the whole sort of vision laid out in front of us, and then we'll walk back through it. I would love to. The Word of the Lord, uh, chapter 7, uh, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked at its wings, looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. 
After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Papa Fred. Uh, Greg, can you sort of introduce us to what's, just to kind of give us a basic sense of what's going on in this chapter? It's a, it's a little confusing the first time we look over this. Uh, we'll do my best. Um, and so one thing to keep in mind as we're coming here, remember up to this point, Daniel has been the one interpreting dreams. Somebody has a dream, Daniel interprets it. Um, this time it's Daniel who has the dream. And it's a little different for Daniel because he's not the one um, just interpreting. He's the one receiving it. So it, it has an impact on him. Um, I think as it says at the very, very end in verse 28, he's, he goes through all of it. He says, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So Daniel is receiving this vision. He's not just interpreting someone else's. This is one that pertains to him, one that pertains to the people of God, one that pertains to the future of the people of God, um, one that pertains to the rest of history and what's going to happen in the end. Um, it is an all-encompassing dream. And if we were to receive one like this, we would be a little bit disturbed too. Um, and so we shouldn't be surprised that Daniel was. Um, but again, going back, this is, you know, thinking of the chiasm, chapter two, chapter seven, Daniel gets this vision um, and it's very similar to what we've seen before. There are some differences. Um, and so let's just consider some of what this is. Look at verse two. It says, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now we, we read that and it's like, oh, it's just a picture of winds blowing on the water. But in ancient times, the great sea was often seen as the source of chaos, the source of rebellion against God. Anything bad that's going to come upon the world is going to come out of the sea. Okay, and so the four winds of heaven are stirring the sea and then out comes these 
frightening monsters. Okay, you got you to think about the fact these, these are not typical beasts that you would think of. It's, it's a, they're hybrids. They're, they're these terrifying mixtures of, of different things. I mean, look at the first one. The first was like a lion. Lions can be scary. You're in, a, you're in a dream and a lion comes out of the sea and you're like, wait a minute, what? And then this lion has wings. Lions are scary enough when they can run. If they can fly, <laughs> that's going to be even worse. And so he sees that. But then look at what happens. The wings are plucked off. And then the lion does what? It's made to stand on two feet like a man. And this lion, this terrifying beast who had wings is now given the mind of a man. We don't want lions to have the mind of a man. That's scary. You think about the, the bear, this huge bear already consuming things. It's got three ribs in its mouth. Um, and it's commanded to go devour even more. You look at the third beast, a leopard. Leopards can be scary. And this one has four wings and four heads. If you saw that in your dream, you, you wouldn't be like, oh, wow, science fiction. Yeah, this is great. It's like Star Wars or, you know, um, you know the, the Greek God movie, you know, where Perseus fights the, the, uh, the Kraken. Like, you would be terrified. And then if that's not enough, you get this fourth beast. He can't, he do, it doesn't even look like any beast. He, he can't even give like a typical description other than it's terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong with iron teeth devouring and breaking in pieces and stamping what was left with its feet. And it was different. It had 10 horns. And so, I mean, you're Daniel, the interpreter of dreams, and then God sends you a dream, and this is what you start to see. This would be absolutely terrifying. Um, and so keep, keep that in perspective. These are these freakish, earthly beasts that come out of this, this sea of chaos and rebellion against God. Um, and what do they do? They, they have dominion. They have kingdom. They, they, they cause war. They, 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 they are violent. Um, and it's just representing what the kingdom of men, the kingdoms of men do to one another. Um, this, is, this is a frightening thing. There are real people that are underneath these images, nations and peoples that are going to rise and then fall and suffer and die. Um, and so we know if we're ready to go to like the historical, um, historical aspect of this, we, we can kind of look back and see that Daniel is actually looking forward to four successive kingdoms. Okay, maybe you know this, maybe you've thought about this. You look at the first one, it says it was like a lion that had eagle's wings. And again, the wings plucked off, lifted up from the ground, made to stand on two feet like a man. The mind of man was given to it. That clearly, I think, is referring to Nebuchadnezzar, who was exalted, but then humbled and brought back up. You know, he was given the mind of a beast, given the mind of a man. And so I think that first one is a reference to, to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. The next one, uh, a, a, a beast like a bear, um, you know, raised up on one side. I think when you think of the Medo-Persian empire, one aspect of that was stronger than the other. So maybe that's a reference to the fact that there's one aspect of this bear that's, that's stronger than the other aspect, but it's still together. The third one, um, is referring to the coming kingdom of Greece by Alexander the Great. And you say, okay, Alexander was one man. But remember, he died really early. And then his four generals are the ones that took over and they had dominion. Like his kingdom was split up, but it was his four generals who ruled the world for a time. And hence the, four, the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And then this last one, I think, this, this terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong beast with iron teeth I think we're right 
to see this as the Roman Empire. Now, as we think about the fact that there are four successive kingdoms here, we also need to keep in mind, Kevin DeYoung said this, and I thought it was a good insight. Um, When you come to literature like what we're looking at, and you have visionary apocalyptic literature, which is highly symbolic, it's very graphic in its imagery, it's it's shocking, it's disturbing, it, it has more than one reference point. Like these kingdoms, I think, first are referring is a, is a prediction of the four kingdoms, the world kingdoms that are about to come. But they're also what we'd say are paradigmatic. Like they're, they're, they're pictures of what earthly kingdoms are going to be like. This is how earthly kingdoms are. They, they rise through conquest and bloodshed and battle. And then they, they reach their peak and then another one comes up and through conquest and battle and bloodshed conquers that one. And then they're established. I mean, this is the way the world works and the kingdoms of the world work. And so first we see successive kings, but we also see a picture of how earthly kingdoms are going to operate until the very end. No, that's really, that's really helpful, Papa. That's really good, Greg. You know, Calvin says he really highlights, in fact, I'm not going to read too much from Calvin because he really uh, highlights these four kingdoms, uh, how ferocious they were. Um, You know, when we go back to chapter two, they're just kingdoms that get, they're followed by other kingdoms. We, we identify them as, you know, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, and Greek, and Roman. But in this chapter, Calvin says, without doubt, he here proposes the image of a raging sea to warn the faithful against the dreadful commotions at hand, just as if the sea were agitated with storms and raging with tempest on all sides. This is the meaning of the phrase. Here he names four winds to show the faithful how the motion should shatter the globe how the motion that would shatter the globe should not be single and simple, but one that various storms should rise together exactly as it happens. So it's, you know, they didn't have the five o'clock news. I mean, these cat, I would, I thought today, you know, Daniel's anxious about these dreams. He's worried, alarmed about these dreams, but it's also good news because the gospels promise the ancient of days, the son of man, and, and, these captives, the, the Israelite captives, the Hebrew captives that are in now, um, well, of course, Belshazzar is still Babylon. They're still in Babylon. Of course, Cyrus comes in or Darius comes in. But they, this is hope for them. This is encouragement that, that this is not all there is to it. Uh, you, yeah, you have these kingdoms and there will be chaos. And like you said, Greg, these kingdoms could be Nazi Germany, they could be the Soviet Union, they could be any that we know about in history. Uh, this just happens to highlight the kingdoms that were in the context of our text where, when Daniel was living there. So, exciting. Yeah, one, one thing I would say is I would love to have the um, Papa Fred audio Bible. Like, that was, that was really good, <laughs> just what you read right there. I'd love to get that like, recorded. That would be fun to listen to you uh, read, the, read the Bible. One, one of the things I would say, though, just kind of stepping back from what they've already said, in terms of Daniel chapter 7, it's a, it's a different type of literature. I thought Kevin DeYoung was really good on this. He said, during your average day, you could read a bunch of different literature. He said, you could read Lord of the Rings for a little while. You could switch over, read Jab Packer for a little while. You could read, like, the sports page, for example. And he said, you're reading different literature. And uh, we, we're, we're, we're approaching those differently when we go to those different types of literature. In the Bible, sometimes we're not approaching it differently. We come to Daniel 7, we just think this is the same 
thing. Well, it's helpful just to realize this is a different type of literature. It's apocalyptic literature. And just a definition of apocalyptic literature. I thought this was really helpful from, from one of the commentators. He said, I would say that biblical apocalyptic is a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people despised and cast off by the world. So it's, it's meant to encourage the people of God. How so? With a vision of the God who will come to impose his kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. And it communicates this message through the use of wild, scary, imaginative, bizarre, and head-scratching imagery. But just if we think as a whole, this is meant to encourage the people of God with a vision of God. Now, it uses head-scratching imagery to do that. But if we can just, I think that's helpful just to see that at the outset, what this is intended to do is intended to encourage us. And so many times, like, uh, it's not intended for theological sleuths, I think is what Sinclair Ferguson said. Like, you can just dive oh, into think. this. Yeah, it's, it's like people get <laughs> so obsessed with, uh, I think Alistair Beck said, with the three ribs in the mouth of the bear. Like, what are these three ribs? And you can spend hours thinking about it. What are the ten horns? Like what he had for lunch. Yeah, like what he <laughs> That's right. It's meant like he's devouring nations. But people can try to figure out what these are. And if you get so obsessed with that, like DeGung said, he preached the Revelation, and people would come up with the craziest theories about different things, what they mean. I said, you can, it's okay to do that, but if, you, if that's what you're fixated on, you've missed it. I think the big point is 9 to 14, which we'll get to. That's the big point. Is if, we could, if we miss the vision of God 9 to 14, we've missed the whole thing. We're, we're spending Absolutely. so much time on, the, on there. And that could be a danger for all of us to just, what do these all mean when we're missing the vision of God? No, that's very helpful. Do you guys remember, I think it was Oscar Wilde who wrote the book, The Picture of Dorian Gray? Does anybody remember this book? So a long time ago, there was a black and white movie made about this, uh, and I've only seen clips, so I haven't actually seen the whole movie. But it, basically the idea here being Oscar Wilde, you know, was very much like kind of a playboy figure. He was very uh, immoral and very cool about how, what he was doing. And, and his, his character, Dorian Gray, is kind of like he himself in the, in the book. And the, D- Dorian Gray makes this deal where he will have his eternal, like he, he always looks really good, really young, always looks healthy, and, and he lives this horribly immoral lifestyle, this debauched, horribly immoral lifestyle, and he never, it never seems to show in his physical appearance. Like he, 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 he lives incredibly badly, but his appearance stays eternally young, eternally, like he, just, he always looks healthy. And uh, there's a scene at the end of the black and white film where uh, it turns out he's made some sort of deal, I don't quite understand how this works, where all his evil and corruption is being transferred to a picture, a, a mural, a painting of himself, and it's not showing up in his own body. And in the black and white film, there is only one shot in the movie that is not in black and white. It's at the very end of the movie, this picture that is absorbing all of his sin and all of his evil so he can stay eternally young. There's a moment where they pull back and they show, an, they show a picture of him, this mural of him, and it truly represents his evil. His morality is seen visually in the, in the depiction of him as a person, and it's this g- grotesque, disfigured, ugly, emaciated picture of himself. Because really it's saying this is, what he, this is who he is morally. His moral character is this emaciated, disgusting figure. But if you just met him on the street, you would think this is a nice happening guy. This is a cool guy. This is a, this is a guy you'd want to be around. And that's a little bit of a picture of what you see here. The, the kingdoms can look like gold, silver, and bronze, right? They can look like these beautiful things outwardly. But yet what's going on behind the scenes, what's really going on under the surface is the picture of Dorian Gray. They, these are not like... These kings lived in beautiful palaces. Nebuchadnezzar had built one of the seven wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens in Babylon. He did this for one of his wives. These, this incredible place that people would travel the world to see. The walls of Babylon, these the purple and blue, they've painted them. They've actually found parts of the walls of the Babylon. You can see them, I think, in the British Museum. Glorious place, beautiful place. So much money, so much wealth, so much power, so much uh, food supply and all these things. And yet, when God looks at these kingdoms. He doesn't see the beauty, the artistry, the, the, the talent, and the treasure of what, all these things. He sees them morally. And the morality of these kings is repugnant. It's kind of like 
Putin right now in Russia, right? He, he has so much wealth. I mean, apparently people say he's a multi-billionaire based on how he's rigged the system. I don't know if that's true or not, but I wouldn't surprise, <laughs> wouldn't surprise me. And he, 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 from the way he's framing himself in Russia, he looks like he's powerful. He looks like he's behind these wonderful walls in this wonderful place. And uh, yet, who he is morally, who he is as an actual person is like a mafia boss who has the controls of nuclear weapons. That's who he is in real life. And so, similarly, apocalyptic literature is trying to tear the veneer off of these beautiful kingdoms like Babylon and Rome, and today you can think of Hollywood or whatever with all the glitz and glamour, God rips the beautiful veneer off and he says, it's actually a disfigured animal attacking and killing other people. It's actually this lion with wings. It's this bear that is lopsided and deformed, eating and, and it's got ribs sticking out of his mouth. It's this, it's this animal so grotesque you can't even put it into words. that It's got ten horns and all this power, but it's actually grotesque. And it's a, it, eventually you're going to hear about people attacking the saints of God. So. Apocalyptic literature is trying to show God's perspective on what is so often hard for us to see because of the veneer that is, that is so often cast over things in our world today. Uh, let, let, me take, let me take you somewhere real quick. Turn with me to the last book of the Bible, to Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 13. As you are turning there, let me remind you the animals we just heard about in Daniel's vision. The first one was like a lion. So try to remember these. The second one was like a bear. The third one was like a leopard, and the fourth had ten horns. Everybody got that? So you got a lion, a bear, a leopard, and one with ten horns. Now look at the beast in Revelation 13.1. And I saw a beast rising out of where? The sea again, right? It's this raging picture of human evil, a storm-tossed sea. Rising out of the sea, there's a beast with what? Ten horns, ten horns. and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast I saw was like a leopard. That sounds like one of the kingdoms. Its, uh, its feet were like a bear's. That sounds like another kingdom. Its mouth was like a lion's. That sounds like the other kingdom. And we just were told he had ten horns. Do you see what is happening in Revelation? All four beasts from Daniel's vision are somehow, we're seeing elements of all of them in this final beast. There's this ultimate beast here that's being described, and he's coming from the sea. Now turn to the chapter 19 of Revelation. Believe it or not, this is, this is truly an encouraging section uh, when, you, when you hear what happens uh, at this point. When you look here, you are, we are told in uh, chapter 19 that the beast uh, is captured, verse 20, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Again, this is vivid and violent imagery, but do you see how this is meant ultimately to be an encouragement? Saying, listen, the Putins of this world and the whoever, right? Just Every generation has its own group of dictators and tyrants. All of them, one day, are going to be taken off their thrones if they don't repent, and they are going to be cast into judgment. They do not get the final say in this world. And look at chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Hasn't this line always puzzled us? And the sea was no more? You ever wondered about that phrase? Is God like against the oceans? You know what? So in the, in the new earth, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. We're going to be a new earth. This earth will be perfectly renewed and restored. 
You mean there's not going to be large bodies of water? Is, is that? No, no, this is, this is their symbolic language going on here. What is the sea in Daniel? What is the sea earlier in Revelation? The sea is human depravity and evil that the beasts come out of. The Putins of the world come out of the mass of fallen humanity, out of the wicked are like the sea that is always tossed up with surf and it never finds peace. Well, at the end, when God judges the world, the beast is thrown into hell God renews earth, and the sea of human depravity and evil is eliminated entirely from God's new creation. He's not saying there's no bodies of water. That's not the point here. This is apocalyptic language. The removal of the sea is the removal of the source of all these enemies of God's people. Where do the beasts come from? They come so often from the sea. Some come from the land too, but here you have from the sea, and God says, I'm going to eliminate that so at the, at the, on the last day there will be no source of temptation, no source of persecution, and God will wipe away the tears from the eyes of His people. So that's the encouragement where this is all heading. We can turn back to Daniel. Papa, comments? Sure. Um, Okay, we, we've talked about, I've actually seen um, uh, a relief in, in the British Museum of, of Nebuchadnezzar's um, lions with the wings. Um, I mean, that was part of his decor in Babylon. So uh, he was also swift in battle as well. He had a number of, he, he defeated the uh, Egyptians and, and Tyre. I think he, he um, uh, encircled that place for a long, long time and finally captured it, which was uncapturable. Uh, but uh, so I've seen that. And, and of course, we know the thing that amazed me about, uh, you know, we, we talk about Cyrus and he, he let the Hebrews go back home to their and build the temple. Um, he can do all that. And still he's an evil pagan mm-hmm. king. God can use, can raise up these rulers to accomplish his will. Um, you know, I thought about the leopard with uh, describing the uh, leopard swift and four wings. Nobody conquered as fast as Alexander the Great. I mean, he literally in his 32 years, which is about the age of Christ, I guess, conquered the whole world. And he did it with 30,000 troops. Remember the story of um, uh, Gideon? And he kept paring down from 22,000 to 10,000 to 300, I believe. Alexander the Great defeated uh, uh, Darius II or Third army of 800,000 with 30,000 troops. Wow. Because he had, these were like stormtroopers. He was so swift. So there's, there's a lot of great imagery here. But these were all evil pagan kings, and, and, and they're going to come to naught. And, of course, we know about Rome. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and, and Rome and beyond, I think some of the commentaries describe it. It's, it's the future beyond Rome. So, so let's, let's look at, we're in Daniel 7. Let's look at the, uh, the, the really encouraging section here where it looks to the Father and the Son. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, I believe that is God the Father, the Ancient of Days. Uh, His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. That sounds like uh, Revelation 20. Yes. I, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. 
As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Just just pause here. As, As we read this section, Jesus uniquely refers to himself as son of man many, many dozens of times in the Gospels. Almost no one in the Bible calls Jesus the Son of Man. There's a few exceptions. In Hebrews, I think, and there's a couple in Revelation. But Jesus is almost never referred to as Son of Man except by Himself. And Jesus uses it over and over. The Son of Man does this. The Son of Man does that. Well, on the night of His crucifixion, on the, on the uh, morning of His crucifixion, He is taken early, early morning, like probably four or five in the morning. He's taken before the Sanhedrin, remember? And the high priest stands up and says, tell us, are you the Son of the living God or not? And Jesus, Jesus says, I, I, he, says the son, he says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated with the clouds of, of heaven coming with God's power and glory. And so Jesus is talking about this very passage when he refers to himself as the Son of Man riding on the clouds of heaven, and he clearly sees himself as a divine figure. The Sanhedrin, the high priest tears his cloak and says, he does, this is blasphemy. He deserves death. And that is actually, he is crucified in, in response to him quoting this very verse. So let me read the rest of it. Verse 13. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And just, okay, I'm sorry, i got to pause again. You've got clearly the ancient of days is a divine figure. This is God. This is God the Father, clearly, okay? The son of man is clearly human. At least he's like a son of man. It's, it's more of, there's a human aspect to this figure, right? He's a son of man. But at the same time, he's riding on the clouds, which I heard, I read, Seventy other times in the Bible, the only person riding on the clouds is God. So you've got this human figure doing what only God does in the Old Testament. And he's distinguished from God the Father, the Ancient of Days. What could this be? I mean, if you have a Jewish friend, this is a kind of text you would take a Jewish friend to and say, look, there's God the Father, the Ancient of Days. There's also a man, the Son of Man, who's doing something only God is allowed to do, riding on the clouds of heaven, and he is presented with a kingdom from God the Father, and he's worshipped and served by all peoples. So, and this is before the incarnation. And this is before the this is this is 500 years before the birth of Jesus. So let's keep going. Verse 14. To him the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him, some translations worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Scott, some thoughts on this? Yeah, one, one of the commentators just said it's sort of like the, the, the first vision is sort of like a bottom screen like a, of the world and of, the, of these four beastly kings. And it's almost as if he raises up and there's a top screen. And the top screen is this heavenly throne room. And he was just saying, we need to fixate on this top screen. Like if we, again, this is what we, I, 9 to 14 has been so good for me just to think about this week. I was even thinking about Colossians 3. We're supposed to set our minds on things above. Well, a great way to do that is to come to Daniel 7 and think about 9 to 14. This helps us get up in, into the heavenly realm, think about heavenly things. And this vision, when we think about God, I mean, there's so much you could say here, but God is seated, which, which th- this is pretty powerful because he sits down. God is never taken by surprise, Sinclair Ferguson said. He's never undecided, never in a panic about his world. He reigns. Ultimate authority is in the hands of God. And then you have all these myriads serving him. And I begged, so, I mean, there's so much application here. If you feel like you're, you're lonely, Daniel maybe felt like he was lonely, but he, if you get this vision before you, all these myriads serving God, uh, this is what Alistair Begg said. He said, Daniel may be plowing a lonely furrow of godliness in the heart of, Babylonian, of the Babylonian empire at this point, but in serving the ancient of days, 
He takes his place with 10,000 times 10,000. If only he has eyes to see it. So we may feel like, or we may be the only Christian where, where we work, but if we have this vision before us, it sort of reminded me of Hebrews 12, the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. If we remember that, we should be strengthened. Like we are not the only ones like Elijah. There's 7,000 haven't bowed the knee. Well, if we have this vision, there's myriads and myriads serving him. That should give us strength right now. And then also the, the, it's the final judgment. The, these uh, books are open. And again, Alistair Begg just said, all of the injustices are going to be made right at the end. And this is, should, we should draw great strength from this. I, I think of violent crimes that happen and no one's ever found. One, one of the things that comforts me is that God knows. He sees, no matter if they're caught in this life or not, and they're going to have to stand before God someday. God's going to open the books and they're going to have to give an account. And shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, do what is right? God's going to do what is right. I even saw this week somebody gave millions and millions of dollars to Planned Parenthood. And it was just a tragic thing. And I thought, I thought, because I was thinking about this passage, I thought they're going to have to stand before God and give an account for all that money that they are sending to Planned Parenthood. They're going to have to stand before the Ancient of Days and give an account. And just this should be a comforting thing when we see injustice in this world that God is going to do what is just going to do what is right. And again, having this vision, there's so much more I can say in a moment, but that to start us off. No, that, you should keep going. Awesome. That's excellent. Uh, yeah, I think the, the idea that God is the one who's going to bring justice means I don't have to. I don't have to avenge myself. The Lord will take care of that. If someone wrongs me, either that will be forgiven by Jesus if they trust Him, or if they don't trust Him, they will pay for that themselves under God's justice. But I don't have to be the one to lift up uh, and respond to that. I, I, we can forgive, like Romans 12 says, uh, when your enemy is hungry, feed him. When he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Why? Because vengeance is mine, I will repay. We do not have to pick up arms to, to, to avenge ourselves. Papa? Well, I, also, too, I think Daniel was looking looking ahead after this vision, obviously, and I think he knew that uh, this didn't necessarily impact him, but he was thinking about the people down the road that he wanted, wanted to intercede for. I think that's why he was, um, I, that's verse 15, that's a little beyond our text, but that's why he was anxious and, and alarmed. I mean, he knew that, I mean, these, these Hebrew people haven't gone home yet, uh, you know, his family, whatever, wherever they might be, uh, but the good news is that God has promised to conquer these beasts, slay these beasts, and reign and rule forever. And that's got to be the good news. That's not like the gospel in, in an Old Testament context. Something else to consider, um, drawing on what Scott was saying, is keep in mind, you know, we talked about how ferocious these beasts are. Um, and then, you know, verse 8, this, this horn that came up uh, speaking great things. It conquered three of the other horns. It's got eyes like a man. It's, it's kind of weird. It's kind of scary. Um, but what's going on here is we see these, these earthly kingdoms and these earthly leaders, and they, it's like they, they can be so inflated and so puffed up, and they're trying to terrify us into fearing them instead of God. And it made me think about um, the issue, the, the story, in um, 2 Kings, I think it's chapter 6, when Elisha and his servant see the army of the Syrians around and the servant is scared and he's, he's, he's really worried and Elisha prays and says, God, op open his eyes so that he can see that there's more that are for us than are for them. And so God like peels the veil back and the, the, the hills are filled with God's chariots and God's armies, which are vastly outnumbering and vastly more powerful than the army of the Syrians, which are surrounding them. And I think this serves in some way, we, we see these beasts, we see this horn and we're like, wow, like what, what can we do against this? Like who can stand against this? What, what can be done about this? Can, is there hope? And then we get this picture of God 
seated on the throne. And, and he's got, you know, thousand, thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. If you're measuring that, that's like 100 million. It's, it's a lot. And the, the point is, if you're on God's side and you're trusting in him, then ultimately whatever earthly kingdoms threaten or promise or whatever, you don't have to fear them because there's a kingdom that's not going to fall. There's a kingdom that's not going to be conquered. Like all these kingdoms are going to come to an end, but God's kingdom is not. God's kingdom is not going to come to an end. Um, and flowing from that, it's interesting. Um, I think we have just a moment quickly. If you'll turn to the left to Psalm 8. Um, Psalm 8. And this is drawing from, from the original creation when God gave humanity dominion over the earthly creatures. Um, look at Psalm 8. Uh, verse 5. It says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, him, mankind, and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Mankind was destined, created to rule over the creatures on earth. And so keep that in mind because I think that is also in the background here as we think about this son of man who's a heavenly being, but he's also got human qualities. He is taking up that mantle of human dominion and he's the one who's going to rule these terrifying beasts, okay? And so he's fulfilling that original creation mandate and kind of like um, in, in a much bigger sense because again, these, these are terrifying beasts, earthly beasts coming out of the sea and yet, here's this heavenly human figure who's going to come and he's going to exercise dominion. And again, that's why we end up putting our hope in him, not in these beasts, because they're meant to be conquered. These beasts and these kingdoms are meant to fall because there's one who's greater who's going to rule over them. And that's the one we hope in. I don't know how much time. I'm just going to squeeze this in. I got to squeeze this story in uh, from, from a missionary, uh, John Patton. Uh, I just thought about John Patton when I was thinking about this because I feel like he lived with this vision of God before him, basically, like eternally uh, focused. But if you don't know him, he took, he took the gospel to cannibals, very violent area. He lost his wife and, and young child. And then he had four years of just intense uh, suffering. Like his life was threatened numerous times. One example, there were, there were natives around his house and the guy rushed at him with his axe. He was going to kill him with his axe. And right before he's about to die, another chief jumped in front of him and defended John Patton from instant death. I mean, he was seconds away from death. I mean, imagine living, living like that. And this is, what he, this is what he says. He says, life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not for one brief hour when or how attack might be made. And then here's the key. And yet with my trembling hand, he, he was fearful, yet with my trembling hand, clasped in the hand, capital H, once nailed on Calvary. So he's got his hand held in the Son of Man's hand, who's died for him. And now the Son of Man is swaying the scepter of the universe. What happens? So that's the vision of God here, it basically, in Daniel 7. What happened to Patton? Calmness and peace and resignation abode my soul. So if we live in light of this, the vision of God here, and the throne of God, Son of Man, his kingdom is going to last forever. It's going to bring calmness, peace, serenity. We're going to help us to be faithful in here now. Papa, can you close us in prayer? Yes. Read uh, first uh, Revelation 19, a few verses. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Father God, Hallelujah! That's just what this passage is about. You have avenged the blood of your servants. 
through the ancient of days and through the Son of Man, who you introduce in this in this chapter, chapter seven. And Lord, um, that should be our hope. That should be our uh, uh, when when we get all anxious and and alarmed over current events, over the war in Ukraine, for example. Just remember chapter seven of Daniel, and and the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just uh, maybe uh, as an enticement for next week, uh, we do plan to talk a little bit more about the Antichrist. We didn't really get much to him today. He's mentioned briefly in today's text, but next, uh, next week he's mentioned more than just about anywhere in the Old Testament later in Daniel 7. So that'll be part of what we talk about, Lord willing, next Sunday. Thank you, guys.